to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for joining me. And if you've stuck with me through all these hard conversations and stories, I thank you so much for your continued support. My guest today is one you'll be familiar with if you've been a listener of the podcast for any time. Marcy Walker joins me again for our monthly chat series we're doing this summer. I just adore Marcy and her insights so much, and I think you will too if you take the time to really listen to what she has to say. Marcy is a gifted writer and researcher and the woman behind Black Coffee with White Friends. She's also the creator of Mockingbird History Lessons, where she researches, writes, and shares the missing narratives of our country's history. Marcy is a gifted writer and researcher and the woman behind Black Coffee with White Friends. She's also the creator of Mockingbird History Lessons, where she researches, writes, and shares the missing narratives of our country's history. In this episode, Marcy and I talk about all things U.S. monuments and memorials and the recent controversies surrounding them. Marcy gives her wisdom and insight from a biblical, historical, and justice perspective. We end our conversation with a message of hope and encouragement, as Marcy shows us that even in these times of racial tension and pandemic, glimmers of hope and joy can still be found. All right, Marcy, welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast, but I should call it Black Coffee with your white Her Story Speaks friend, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you came back and talked to, or willing to talk to me again today, Marcy. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here. I, I'm, I'm honored that you've asked again. So yeah, thank you. Well, I think um, you you offer something so unique. I mean, you give such you have such grace and hope, and you can tell the hard, honest truths. But you also understand that it is hard for people. And I think people, the way you talk and communicate, people are willing to listen. And I just can't think of a better person to talk about these hard things with than you, Marcy. So I really do just appreciate your time that you, that you're giving to me and my listeners to educate all of us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I do want to say I'm so sorry. I saw your post on for the book club that you lost your dog this last weekend. I'm so sorry. That's so hard. It is so hard. Um, In Richard Rohr's uh, Universal Christ book, he talks about that he dedicated his book to his dog that he had just lost, Venus. And he says that he's sure that Venus has been Christ to him, um, meaning that Venus represented all the lovely things that we want to see that are eternal and that keep us faithful. And I, our, our little doggy Zoe, she, I inherited her. I was her stepmother, (laughs) Um, but um, she was just such a sweet little Mm. being in the world. And it's sad that she had to go, but she was in a lot of pain and it was honestly a pleasure to release her from that pain it was our honor and it felt like the dignified thing to do for her Um, but it's hard and we have another dog who's looking around for her and that's really sad that's the hardest that is yeah we we had to put ours one of ours to sleep two years ago and it was so hard. I mean, it's just, you don't think it's going to be that hard. And it's just, that's a hole in your family. You don't. Like, I find, I mean, this dog literally, her life was treats and laying around. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was it. I mean, up until the very end, I reached out my hand to her and she seriously was like, 
is that a treat that you have? You know, like she hadn't been able to eat, but she still was like, I still enjoy a good treat, which just makes me just hopeful that somewhere in heaven, someone arrived with a treat for her right, that's at the right. and just gave her a treat and let oh. her in. Well, um, the other thing on a more positive note, congratulations yeah. on Mockingbird reaching your first yeah. goal for it. That's so oh exciting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So exciting. Just so everyone knows, um, this week, um, I think it's Friday morning, I'll be doing a live IG on Mockingbird's Instagram feed, just answering questions that people might have about the project, people might have about history, about race, whatever. I I opened it up. I said, whatever you need to ask me. Um, I'm going to try to answer as many questions as I can in a short space. But what I don't answer live, I will answer in a post. So is that just for subscribers, Marcy, or is that for everybody? No, that's going to be on Instagram. Anyone can watch it. Okay, awesome. So we'll make sure to note that and a link and where people can find you for Friday then, because that's pretty cool. You're opening yourself up for that. And why don't we plan if we have time later in the podcast too, to just talk about some of your hopes and long-term plans. And now that you've reached your goal, does that sound good? Yeah, that would be fun. When we talk about good news, hope, hope filled things, we'll talk about next steps for Mockingbird too then. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to dive into our conversation today. You and I, we talked a little bit about what we're going to talk about. So the first part of the conversation was kind of my idea. And the second part was yours, which I love. We're going to talk about some more hope-filled things and positive things that are going on. But before we dive into that, we're going to talk about memorials, monuments, all of that that's a controversy right now because so many are coming down. People want them come to come down, but some people don't. So you as a historian, you have a view on that that I think is really important for us to listen to. So we're going to kind of talk about both sides of that. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because I think we, you and I are probably aligned closely yeah. on our beliefs and in things coming down, but there is another side to it that I want to be sensitive to and talk about. And so yeah. people can work this out in their minds why we're doing it. And, but it is a hard thing. So let's just dive into this, Marcy. So the monuments, the memorials, since George Floyd um, died, there have been Lots of protests, obviously. They're being defaced. Some are being pulled down. Let's just start really generally. Your thoughts on this? What um, your feelings on this? Is it all good? Just kind of tell me your take on things. Yeah. Well, I will. I do want to say I... I do have a history platform, but I am not a historian. Okay, I am a, okay. I am. I only want to say that just because I know the work that it goes into being a historian. I do a lot of work with history and I'm obsessed with it. And I spend literally hours a week on it. It's what I do full time. But um, I haven't done all the things that get you that title of I am okay a you're right so, I guess I yeah. I'm a writer you're, of you history. are a writer compared <laughs> to the average American I feel like you're a historian but you're right like somebody like Letty yeah. who was on last week who yeah. has a master's yeah that is technically a historian so or Ibram and, and people need to know that in the same way that the 1619 project is not a project of historians it's a project of journalists that's um, it doesn't make the it doesn't make the information any less important. It just it's just a clarification of, okay. of identity, I guess. Okay, um, that's a good point. So yeah. you are a writer and a researcher, and you have a passion for history. So. Yay! Okay, so, <laughs> exactly. So we'll we'll um, say that then. 
Yeah. Um, as far as the monument go, monuments go, I think what we have to really pay attention to is that there's a difference between a, a monument and a memorial. We can remember something and have a memorial for something without having a monument for it. And I think that we in this country, monuments really mean an entirely different thing than a memorial, right? Um, a memorial doesn't necessarily have to be a public display. Usually a, a graveyard is a memorial, right? We put a tombstone on and we go and that's how we can remember our loved ones. Or we might have an urn or we might have a tradition. There are lots of ways to memorialize someone. Um, what a monument is, is a declaration of a memory. It is a way of saying that this is a memory that we feel defines us. And I think that when we look at it like that, um, in that context, we can be, we can see that we don't want to remember our division in this country and the things that divided us as a country. And we have to remember the Civil War, Confederate monuments, um, and the Confederacy, they wanted to break away from the unification of the United States as we know it today. They were going to break away and become their, their own government, their own people. And so when we look at that, we have to say, well, is that who we are today? Is that, is that what we represent? We call ourselves the United States of America for a very good reason. We, we fought for that unification. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the reason that they wanted to separate. They wanted to separate because they wanted to continue to build wealth off the bodies of Black people. And they also wanted to continue to collect land over the graves of Native people. And so we have to remember what it meant for them to be separated from the union. And that doesn't mean that your family, if you're coming from that, um, that history and that's your legacy, that you don't need to have any memory of that or that you need to deface your own memories, but it, it means that you need to hold them in contact. You really do. It's kind of like with people who've had very difficult childhoods or, or they've been abused in their childhood by a loved one, a family member. A lot of times there's this confusion on, well, how do I still honor that person? How do I still honor my father who did all these terrible things to me, right? And where do I draw the boundary? And it takes a lot of deep talk <laughs> therapy and a lot of gumption to make that boundary for your own safety and to, to create a new legacy. A lot of times if that's not done, um, what ends up happening is that there's more generations that end up being abused. Right. At the, same of the, at the, at the hands of the same abuser. So I think we have to kind of, and, and it's not like the strongest analogy out there, but it's the, it's, the way that I can best describe to people, like if we were a family, what we're saying is that the people who upheld pretty abusive practices in this family, um, we have decided that we're going to make a statue of them to remind us of the hurt. Yeah. And that's problematic. None of us would do that. We wouldn't, you wouldn't have a portrait of that ancestor up on your wall if you knew that they had raped, pillaged, 
hurt, beat your great, great, great grandmother, yeah. right? You, right. You, if anything, you'd have a picture of your great, great grandmother who survived it. Right. So I think we have to really look at it like that. And that's really hard to do. And that's not, that's not the fault of a lot of people out there. It's the fault of the way that we've been taught our history. That's what I was going to say, because yeah. we don't, unless you've really t- been intentional with diving into real true history, you don't know these truths. And me, especially as a white woman, I've been raised just like, oh yeah, these are the, mon- I mean, I've been to Washington, DC. I've seen, right. I've not been to the South to see those, memor- the monuments, but mm-hmm. I've been to Monticello and Mount Vernon. Right. And it's, oh, you're just presented like, oh, this is feel good, beautiful. You don't, we're not taught the history. So it's the true history. So when they start being ripped down, you almost feel like, gosh, part of, part of your history or part of what you've held onto as ideal has been taken down. But right. the more you learn and the more you learn the true history, you see it's not all rosy like that that we're led to believe and so you as a as a black woman i mean what have you been to any of the monuments in the south have you walked by them or seen them yeah and that's the interesting thing about monuments the confederate states i think there were 11 confederate states but there are 31 states that have confederate monuments interesting i did not know that so it's Mm. kind of like it's not it's not really about the confederacy Uh it is a hundred percent about white supremacy a hundred percent so i have not gone to visit any confederate monuments but i have driven down plenty of confederate streets robert ely streets and all in the south we have that honor spreading throughout the country and so That's the other thing. We often want, we have to have a clear picture of what racism isn't. And what it isn't, isn't only white sheets burning crosses and tiki Mm -hmm. torches. It's Mm -hmm. not just that. And racism can be as beautiful as Monticello. It can be as gorgeous as Mount Vernon. It can be beautiful, right? Yeah. Aesthetically, because you can put glaze on just about anything. You can wrap anything in bacon and it might taste good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. And so we do that with our history. We take these terrible bits and we reimagine them and we glaze over them and we gloss them over and we present them as wedding venues. Yeah. So it's not that every racist act in our country is apparent and just the opposite of charming. Right. You know, um, for all the times that Martin, someone said that Martin Luther King was an articulate black man, which is a racist thing to say. Right. There were equal people who said that Thomas Jefferson was a charming man who liked dinners, <laughs> great to host yeah. dinners yeah. and great yeah. conversation and was well read. And that's equally as racist because we're what we're doing is we're we're not looking at the humanity behind these people. And in my opinion, I honestly I've said to my husband so many times, I don't know why we make statues of anyone. Certainly no one is perfect. Why would we cast them as such? And I think there are better ways to remember people. I think plaques are great. If you know, like throw up a plaque, name a building if you must. But I think Every time that we do that, what we're saying is that we stand behind the good and the bad with every single monument. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's a monument of Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't care if it's Malcolm X. I don't care. I don't care who it is. But every time that you put a statue up, you put a plaque up, 
to honor someone, you are saying, I stand by the good and the bad. Yeah. And that's a really good point because as I was thinking about this conversation, I just kept thinking, well, where do we draw the line with who who we're tearing down and not? And mm-hmm. obviously, if we just did not have these monuments, that would, would solve that problem. But unfortunately, right. in this country, I mean, we have hundreds of them. And I don't, I looked at the exact number, but even the, do you know how many Confederate monuments? Well, we have? I think there's like about seven, I think at a time there was somewhere around 700 monuments, but like 1,500 symbols, Confederate okay. symbols. Yeah. So a, yeah. a symbol might be just the Confederate flag that's emblazoned on a building, not not flying outside of the building, but actually engraved into the building. Right. Or right. Um, a school that's named Robert E. Lee Elementary or Robert E. Lee High School. But we also have to remember there are countless children named after these people. So yes. um, I, mean, I, I think we don't, we, we can't even count <laughs> the number of flags, the number of songs, the number of movies. Gone with the Wind is nothing more than a Confederate monument. Right. And that's, that's what we talked about last time. I mean, it really, it runs, it runs so deep. I mean, if you look at our money, oh yeah, our buildings, I mean, yeah. You know, there's so many ways we could go with this. I mean, Michelle Obama, when she talked about the white house being built by slaves and then her family, the irony of her family living there. So it's like, so what do we do with all these buildings that were built by the hands and feet of, you know, of the hard, the manual labor of slaves? Yeah, I think the problem is that we don't call them what they are. I don't think the problem is so much that they exist. I think it's that we don't call them what they are, these buildings. We have to make note that the White House was built by slaves. We We have to acknowledge these things and make notes and make sure that when like the Whitney plantation does such a good job of this. It's a plantation for you to visit, but you're not going to have a wedding there. And they don't hide the history. The history is pulled all the way forward. That this is a place of death for people. This was a death camp. For some people, it was a plantation and a home. For others, it was a death camp. It was family separation. It was rape. It was inadequate care from the master. It was all those things, and it was a legacy of it, like lineage after lineage of this. So I think we have to be more willing to look at these places in that way. And you know what? I have to say, Monticello has taken steps to be more apparent, especially with the Sally Hennings exhibit that they have. So they have done some work on that. There's still a lot more that they can do, but they... But they have started to take steps towards that. I just recently, maybe a few months ago, was on the Mount Vernon website, and they still have videos out there describing the slaves as chefs and ballots and um, seamstresses (laughs) and giving them job titles. And they weren't seamstresses. I think um, Scholastic recently had to, I think they took a book off their out of publication because they were describing George Washington's birthday cake. I, I I forget how they described it, but they, they called the man who baked it a slave, a baker. He I, wasn't saw, a baker. I read an article about that too. Slave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, in that he was proud and felt honored to make mm-hmm. this cake for this great man. And we all, we, we're so forgiving when we see um, the, the syndrome of, I'm sure that there might've been some slaves who mistakenly believed that their masters loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that does not mean that they were good masters. It means that they were traumatized people who internalized their pain and it came out in a warped way. And we see this with any other thing. We see this with children. Um, we were foster parents. And one of the things that they told us is that no matter what has happened to this child, no matter what they have suffered, and you are going to hear suffering in their story like you've never heard before, they will love that parent. They will love that parent. Yeah. And they will want to be back in that place, no matter what they've dealt with. And in the same way, when we when people are just like, well, but there are slave narratives when they say that the the slave master was great. Well, a lot of those (laughs) slave narratives are written down or recorded by white people. And a lot of those slaves were afraid that the white people were going to turn on them and go back and tell their the slave master what they said. So they, of course, they were going to say, "Oh, it's wonderful here. Right. It's resort living." They're not going to be honest, right? And so we need to remember that. That's a really good analogy with the because fo- we were also foster parents. Yeah, and same thing. The most horrific yeah. stories, but they love their their parents. They love. Um, they have that parents. allegiance to them, and and that's that's what they know and where they're bonded that's with. But know. that's a really good. analogy. So there's several ways I could go with this. So, you know, talking about the Confederate monuments, maybe people see that and they're like, okay, I agree with that one. Those shouldn't be up. But then it's, my mind can go and I'm sure others like, where do you draw the line? Um, Okay. So Thomas Jefferson, now we know his history, maybe him, but then we start going into George Washington. He did have slaves. So it's just, is there a line that we draw? I mean, I know in an ideal world, we just don't have any of them, like you just said, but we've got a lot of them. And do they all come down or is there a line that, okay, George Washington was our first president. Okay. What about the American flag? Like there's just, that's where people's minds go. So, so what do you do with all that, Marcy? I mean, it gets, it gets complicated. Well, I'll say this. I don't think that taken down, I, I want all those to come down, but that's not realistic. It's just not going to happen. I, I, I would love to see that happen in this country, that this whole country becomes so mobilized around justice and truth and, and want to be the we, the people that we should have been from the beginning. And let's talk about that. That never meant everyone. <laughs> we the people never even meant everyone. So I think one of the things that we have to consider is that even if you take down these monuments, that does not mean that we're removing monuments spiritually and mentally. They are still going to, they're going to be like ghosts that haunt us even still. If we, we can say, NASCAR can say you can't bring Confederate flags in here, but that does not mean that Confederate attitudes are not going to be in those stamps. They are. Um, And so I think what we have to do is we have to educate ourselves on what they mean. We can take them down, but we have to educate people on what they mean. I think it's really important that some of the things that have been done with Thomas Jefferson is that Monticello just talks about it now. Yeah, I agree. I didn't, I, when I went there as a child and I don't yeah. remember that they talked about it. So no, this I, is very recent. Okay. I was going to say, I um, do not remember Very, that, so very recent. Um, they have more language around it now. Not perfect language. They need to go a lot further. Um, we need to diversify the people who handle these foundations. Most of these foundations, the Monticello Foundation, George Washington's Foundation, are managed by white people. 
That's we need point. people who work for social justice, who work to, we need those kinds of historians, historians like Henry Louis Gates and Letty and, and Imbram mm-hmm. Kendi. We need people like that to help to be on those boards and help decide how we teach this history. Right. We have to keep trying because what we're doing, we're not teaching history. We're just glorifying men. Right. And as Christians, that should automatically send up alarm. We should not be glorifying, idolizing, casting engraved images of any man. We right. just shouldn't flat out be doing it. That's right. And it's something that is taught so often in the Bible. I can't believe how, how often we missed it. I mean, from the get-go, the first times that we try to build an idol, God intervenes every Mm -hmm. single time. So we first have the people go through a terrible time with the flood. They mobilize again and they decide we are going to build a structure to reach the heaven. We're going to build something that we can look at and say, we did this. And God says, this is not good. This isn't good, right? And a lot of people have been taught that passage on on the Tower of Babel as a reason to be separate, but that's Mm -hmm. not at all what God was saying. It's a reason not to be homogenous is what he's saying. It's a reason not to be supremacist and singular in our identity. And because when that happens, we believe that we're God. We believe that we have all the power and that we're God. Why wouldn't you? Everyone agrees with what you feel, right? So we have that story. Mm -hmm. We also have the story of the disciples are walking along with Jesus and they see the temple and they're just talking about how beautiful this temple is because it really was a magnificent structure and you can read the history of the structure that they were remarking on. And it would have been back then for them, like really seeing like some of the things that you see in Dubai, the structures that you see and and you're just like, wow, right? And Jesus flat out says, it's not even going to be here. Don't even put your faithfulness towards this. Don't cast your eye on it and, and think that this is the pinnacle of spirituality. And the interesting thing about that temple is that it wasn't even built by the church. It was being built by Herod. So mm-hmm. it was being built by the government. So yeah. we have to think about these things that we have cast around us and why are they there? The other thing about these monuments is that most of them went up Jim Crow days. They didn't go up after the Civil War. Right. And we also have to remember that white women were the ones who did all the funding. I know, Marcy. They did the fundraising. They did the, they are the daughters of the Confederate. There are so many of them. They were the ones who were pushing this. We all know as women that most most things aren't going to get done without our help and our assistance. And just like with slavery, women were complicit with that. They were complicit with this now. And we see it in the way that the two. 2016 voting went down and we were so mm-hmm. shocked that so many white evangelical women who scream pro-life voted for a racist president and i know that that hurts a lot of people's feelings but i have to call it what it is he's racist no we yeah. we do and yeah we weren't going to go down the trump road again but i mean we saw it in the rally in tulsa yeah well also last, his protection of these of these um, monuments, yeah. the fact that he, he feels the need to protect them. And also, for, for those of you who really don't believe that this president is racist, I need you to just remember that when racists took to the streets of Charlottesville, he said that there were good people on both sides. 
And that's so problematic. I, and as a Christian, if you cannot understand that, the problem yeah. with that, I just beg you to really ask God to work in your heart on that. Yeah. Because it would be the equivalent of saying that the people who were persecuting the Jews, that Paul could have remained on the side of the Romans and also went out and told the gospel. He couldn't do both. He had to renounce that part of himself. And I think that as a country, we have to always renounce that part of ourselves that persecuted Native people, Asian people, and Black people, and now largely a lot of Hispanic and Latino communities. We have to renounce that history. We can't be both. We can't be both. And having a president right now that doesn't see that at all, to try to unify who is who is saying that we need to preserve our history with these monuments. And that's what people are hearing. I think that's why people are still grappling with this, because so many are looking at like these monuments are our history. I mean, one of them that they just took down of Robert E. Lee was built 130 years ago. I mean, yeah, but it's not our history. Monuments right. are our I history. I agree. For our sure. history is our history. And that's what our pres- president isn't seeing. But you also have to decide, are you going to take the advice of a man who believed that Frederick Douglass was alive? Who, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a man who doesn't really even know history. He believed that Frederick Doug- Douglass was an African-American who was still living. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and had to be told that he was an ex-slave who died a long time ago. So mm-hmm. if you're going to take your history from him, that's fine. But just know um, you, you're setting yourself up for receiving half-truths. And yes. so, and I, and I understand. Here's the thing. I understand. If, you, if I were a person who had been as privileged as our president, with wealth, being a man, be, having real estate, inheriting wealth, he inherited a lot of wealth, living in a city where his family had a lot of, this, a lot of things already established for him and stepping into that, having access to great education and learning the history that I'm sure that he learned along the way, which is the history of the lost cause. Mm-hmm. which look that up if you don't know what I'm talking about with that. It would be very frightful and scary to see everything that I've been taught suddenly removed. Yeah. I understand that that must feel so bizarre, but as Christians, you have to remember, this is exactly how they felt when Jesus came. Mm. Everything that they had found to be sacred, he challenged from their Sabbath day to their money, to the way they prayed, to who could be seated at the table and who couldn't be seated at the table, to who could come into the temple and who couldn't come into the temple, to how they changed the money at the temple, everything that they held sacred, he challenged. And yeah. guess what? They pushed back and they, they murdered him on the cross in the end. Yeah. So I think if you're looking at what side of history to be on, think about that. We all say that when we read our Bible that we, 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 would, we wouldn't be, we would know. How could you not know? He's doing all these miraculous things. And how could they not see that he was the son of God? They couldn't see for all their monuments and memorials that they were holding firm to. Their memorials were the Sabbath, 
tithing, all those things. That's what they were, they were upholding. Um, who could talk in the temple, who couldn't talk to the temple, where women should be placed, where they shouldn't be placed, um, who got stoned, who didn't get stoned, all those things. In the very first sermon that um, Jesus gives, it's a proclamation that he is going, coming for the oppressed. That is why he's arrived. And then the Sermon on the Mount is him restoring the faith of those people who have been persecuted and oppressed by their own people's desire to keep sacred things over humanity. Yeah. And we're doing it again. You're right. You're right, Marcy. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. When you look at it that way, I mean, it totally sheds a different light on it. And I like what you said earlier, which... You know, you, we were talking about Trump as the example, but feeling threatened. And I think that's what we need to look at, too, in our own selves. Like, if we're, if we're feeling threatened by something, these monuments being removed, like, what is that that we're feeling? Like, really, we need to examine in our own selves. I mean, I know I've had right. this last week discussions with my father-in-law, an older white gentleman, who just, just thinks this is horrific that these are being taken down. But I just want to know, I, I think when you feel that way, you've got to look at, like, what is this threatening in myself, and, you know, I've seen posts of people comparing them being removed to like Auschwitz that people don't want, they want the concentration camp memorial up. But again, it's how we're defining it, like you and, said. And, and it's not the same thing. If you go to Germany, there are no Nazi, yes. there's no Hitler, there's no monument of Hitler. He's not on their money. There are no Nazi um, regime people on the back of their money. I think the thing that we have to tell people when they say, but what about these monuments? First of all, I would challenge anyone out there, you go look up these monuments and you find out who was in charge and who helped erect them. And you decide if those are the people that you want to be aligned with. Yeah. Yeah. Monuments weren't erected by abolitionists and civil rights activists. They were erected by the legacy of families who lost slavery and by segregationists. And so we need people who wanted to keep things separate. And any time that our 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 country was changing or laws were being passed to give more freedoms to the least of these black people in the country, Asian people, Native Americans, um, people of color, as well as immigrants coming from Europe. And they felt threatened by that. They erected a monument Mm -hmm. to remind people who they needed to be in order to survive in this country and make sure that they knew that you needed to be white and you needed to be male or you need to be closely related to those things. The wife of, the daughter of. And funny that we have all these Confederate memorials, but we don't have a lot of other memorials mm-hmm. for and monuments. We don't have monuments of Vietnam heroes. Where, where are they? That's a very good where, point. Where are they? And where are the monuments of the Black people who fought in the war? Where are the monuments of the Native American people who fought in the war? We don't have monuments of them, but we have monuments of the white people who fought for the Confederacy, yeah. more so than we do the Union. Yeah. So what, what are we saying with that? Right. And so if you really want to defend them, go look them up. Find out who put it there, how, find out how they petitioned to get it, and why they chose 
that particular place because a lot of these monuments are places where Black people were. They wanted them to see them, to remind them. It was a memory for Black people. It was a scare tactic. That's why they're towering. They're not small. Yeah. And talking about the definition, like you said, it's not destroying history because we do have places that have done this very thoughtfully. I mean, Tina Strong with the the legacy tour that she does to the lynching museums and memorials. I mean, we museums, memorials are not the same as monuments and statues. So I think that we've got, hopefully people see that. So I got, I have about three more devil's advocate questions with that. Okay. Okay. So another post I saw so many of my conservatives friends sharing yesterday was Sean King, who he put out a post saying that all the white Jesuses need to come down to. All the Jesus statues, white Jesuses, they all need to come down in this country. So, of course, that has evangelical Christians. See? See where they want to take it? They want all their Jesuses down, too. And I think that goes back to drawing the line. And I I don't know. I'm not asking for an answer. I'm just asking your thoughts on that, Marcy. And I didn't give you these questions in advance. For for that, I just go back to the Bible. And and God said one of our commandments is not to put put any engraved images of gods up, including God. So we probably shouldn't have been done doing that. Right. It's plain and simple. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an advocate of any statue of a God for Christianity. Yeah. That is, we, that's our faith. And my thing is that the fact that we have so many pictures of Jesus and we have all of our, all of our different idols that we serve that are little icons of Jesus and statues of saints, but then we would criticize Hindu faith, kind of like, and yeah. say that that faith is, you know, taboo as they worship statues. It's kind of like, that's a double standard. Like, what are we really saying? Well, people, what if people say, well, we're not worshiping the statues. You know, we have, Catholics have Mary statues, right. like it's just in memory or to look at, like, yeah. what would you say to that? Like, we're not worshiping them. I mean, it's just in memory. Or to look at them and be inspired. And, and I'm fine with that, honestly. Yeah. I, you know, I, I love the, the notion of saints. And I, I personally feel a deep connection to saints and sainthood. But here's the problem with that. Where we have seen saints and people have pictures and they have descriptions and, and they have definitely, they're definitely able to say this person knew and painted a picture of this saint or Mother Teresa or whatever. We don't have that with Jesus. And we are putting our own thoughts on what he should look like without even knowing if that's what he looked like. And that's problematic. And I know that uh, my sister and I were talking the other day about the little girl who paints Jesus. I think it's a blind little girl who, Mm -hmm. and my sister is just like, I just don't know. How did she put it? She said, I just don't know. I, I believe her experience, but her experience of seeing Jesus would obviously come from her experience of her blindness and her life. So I don't know what it was that she's seeing when she's painting. Yeah. And I don't know if buying these paintings bring, I shouldn't need to buy a painting to bring myself closer to Jesus. It's basically what my sister was saying. Um, We also have to keep in mind, I think um, that when we, when we um, when we are talking about white Jesus, there are lots of Christians who do believe that Jesus is white, and 
Jesus at best was a tan man, <laughs> you know, but he was a hundred percent not European. And we have to remember that our faith doesn't derive from Europe or Latin or Rome. It derives from Africa and Egypt and the Middle East. And we have to represent that. that. That's how it has to look. It has to be representative of that. But we don't do that. Right. And that's the problem that I think Sean King is talking about. However, I'm just going to say flat out, I don't follow Sean King. I know of his work. And I'm not... And I don't either. I know there's a lot of controversy with right. what he does. I have just seen a right. lot of people sharing his, his stuff, his art, that, that article, that statement in particular. Yeah. I also think we we have to stop taking the word of me, activists, um, mm-hmm. out here. And we have to go back to the Bible and really look at it in the context of the Bible, not in the context of America, which happens a lot in this country. We take these scriptures and we apply it to America. There are people today who believe that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to Washington, D.C. That's not... <laughs> what's gonna happen when when we we inherited this faith we inherited this faith we are adopted into this faith right this is not the faith um this is not the ethnic faith of our ancestors but we have claimed it as such so we have to really pay attention to the cultural norms of his day of the writings of the Bible, we really should know that. We should know more of the language. We should know what Jesus said in Aramaic. We should know how those worlds are so much more expansive than our limited English language. And because we have memorialized and made a monument out of being American, we have therefore made a memorial out of being an American Christian who worships an American Jesus who's for America and not for the rest of this world and who's waiting for America to go out and save the rest of this world. I think it's problematic that we have so many missions that leave our shores to go save souls in other countries, but we've never considered that we don't have it the other way around. We don't have that exchange of African and people from Egypt and people who actually speak the language of the sacred text proselytizing to us. And Did you ever read The Myth of the American Dream? That book? No. Very good. I had the author on, gosh, a couple months ago, but I, I would suggest that one. But it's some it's so much of what you're talking about um, right now. I mean, it, it's, it's spot on with that. And I think that, again, that's the issue with the white Jesus. We're, again, we're putting up almost like our white, white supremacy again with the creating right. Jesus as this white man, the image that, that we want and think is the ultimate image. And right. that's that's the issue with it. And again, we need to look at why we feel threatened for those coming down. It's right. not that right. Sean King's wanting to destroy Christianity, but the Americanized Christianity, I think we need to take a deeper look at. And that's what the white right. Jesus is very symbolic at. And for goodness sake, please don't call that a persecution, because I, I know that a lot of times there are Christians who are saying we're being persecuted. In this country, we have not been persecuted. That our feelings have been hurt, that our rights have been leveled at best, that we can't do anything that we want to do in this country, that sometimes we're offended as Christians, is not the same as our belief being on attack to the point of death. 
that's persecution. We have not been persecuted. Yeah. Um, but for reference, Black people were persecuted for having Bibles when they were slaves or knowing how to read. So there, it's not that people have never been persecuted for this faith. It's just that white people have not been persecuted in this country. And they feel threatened at the tiniest bit of right. uncomfortable or taking something away that they're used to. Yeah. Right, right. And we serve an abundant God who calls himself abundant, generous. Um, that word abundant translates to fat. We serve a God who is just rolling, roly-poly fat with abundance. Yeah. And because we do, we could be a heck of a lot more generous. When someone says, oh, I see you pray, I would like to pray too, but they're Muslim we can be a lot more generous because if we really do believe this faith of ours, that it has the power to transcend, then let it do its power and transcend instead of trying to whack people out of their religion with laws and rules that apply only to them and not to us. We can pray in school, but not you. The thing of it is, is that Jesus says to his disciples, there's a moment where there's some other people who are casting out demons and they're healing and they're, and the disciples get really upset by it. And they're just like, Hey, we need to stop them. And Jesus says, anyone who's not against us is for us. And I think we have to look at how can we imagine that? What sacred imagination can we put around that mm-hmm. in the way that we accept um, Jewish faith, Judaism, and the way that we accept people who, who are Hindu and have other faith. And that doesn't mean that we all have to worship together. But what it means is that we can respect them because they want community, love, justice, hope. They want the same things that we do. How do we work with them rather than try to shut them down and say, no, we are the only ones who can have love, joy, hope, justice. That's our thing. You can't have it. We have prayer. You can't have prayer. We want our kids to be disciple, but you can't have your kids be disciple because it threatens my child. Right. I mean, that's just, and I think that's, I mean, that all relates back having that empathy and knowing other people's stories. I mean, mm-hmm. it relates back even to going back to the monuments. I mean, if, if you knew the stories, one behind the monuments and two behind the slaves, the black people, right that helps you give empathy. And it's, it's so much more than our own story, especially as a white person and white people. Right. And right. I think just like you said, with the different religions, like knowing people's stories and past and histories, it changes everything. It's changed me. Marcia, you know me three years ago, I was a very white conservative girl. Like I would probably not have agreed with a lot of what you're saying. Yeah. But stepping into stories and learning history, it changes. It changes everything. Yeah, I was the same girl. I was just black. (laughs) So a little bit uh, better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was the same girl, um, for sure. I had been raised to be that girl because that was a safe, that was a safe mold for me. I think my, my parents wanted me to be safe in this world. And so they raised me to be very sensitive to white feelings and very sensitive to the conservative Mm -hmm. agenda and to not step a toe out of line. And so I'm sure there's parts of my ancestors who are so excited about who I've become. Yeah. But I'm sure there are days when I'm just like, oh Lord, she did not. So um, I, I don't want the next generation 
my my grandchildren to suffer the same things that I suffered, which I saw my daughter suffer. And I, I, I really don't. And I also don't want white children to miss out on the beauty of Jesus and all the Mago Day that he that's represented in God. And so when we when we narrowed Jesus down to white Jesus, we are narrowing God and we're narrowing, narrowing the whole Trinity. Um, it's not just that we are narrowing this man and giving him a, an ethnic culture. We are taking that story. We are basically saying when we are protecting white Jesus, we are saying that Jesus no longer belongs to the Israelites. He no longer belongs to oppressed people. He belongs to us, white, well, I'm not white, but white American um, capitalist agenda. And that's not true. It's, it's just not true. Everything he said was so counter, counter to, to that, really. To us, yeah, to the way that we flow. So we need to really pay better attention to how we would describe Jesus how we see God, how we imagine, how we depict him in movies. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think this um, is you saying that. I think all of this, yes, this is a lot of work and a lot of deconstructing and things to take down. But my goodness, what an opportunity to rebuild in a healthy, accurate way with everything. You know, the history with Jesus, all of this. I mean, yes, it's going to be a lot of work to take it down. But gosh, to get it right for our children, our children's children. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I also just want to say a couple more things before yeah. we move on. I, d- I definitely don't want to miss a chance to say. Absolutely. The monuments represent the same feelings that lynchings did and hmm. that they were made to be public. There's a reason that they're public. There's a reason that um, there's not a museum where these Confederate symbols are held and people can go to this museum and learn the real history of them. They were made to be as public as lynchings were. They were made to, to guard over um, a supremacist ideology, right? So we have to keep that in mind. They were in the center of town or they were in the front of the government building um, or they're the name of a school. A lot of schools did that at um, as soon as Brown versus the Board of Education passed. So think about that. That's a very so good So just when we were integrating schools and, and that was happening, there were school names being named Robert E. Lee. Let me tell you, that was so, and that's North and South. Yeah. That was to right. let Black people know you are not welcome here. Your child is not welcomed here, right. you know? You're right. And that's, that's a hard fact, but one that has to be looked at. That's such right. a point. Related you really to have to look at that. I just hope that people, people consider what you're fighting for. Mm. Um, Jesus never put a lot of stock in material things. And these are material things. Right. I think that even if you don't understand them, our his- history is not material. We don't need the things to know our histories. History is story. That's why the word stories in the very word itself. Mm-hmm. History is story. Yeah. So when people <laughs> say, you know, we need these monuments for our history, it, nothing could be further from the truth. You don't, you have your own history. There's no monument to you. 
and yet you still have your history. Right. That's just crazy. And then also, I just want people to really go look in the Bible. Look for all the times that someone wanted to erect a statue. Look at how God responded. Look how Jesus responded. There's a moment where Peter and the disciples see Jesus's transfiguration and he talks to Moses and he talks to Elijah. And Peter's thought, first thought is very traditional to his culture. We need to build altars. And Jesus doesn't correct him, but he also doesn't allow him to do that. He gets on about the work that he had come to do, right? And I think also because I think Jesus didn't address it because he, he knew he, was going, he wasn't going to stay transfigured. Mm-hmm. He knew that, the, that, that, that they were going to descend and Moses wasn't going to be beside him. Moses and Elijah weren't coming down with him. I think that's why. And he knew that Moses and Elijah weren't here on earth, yeah. that there was no need to build tents for men who had died right and even moses they didn't have where he was buried right 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 because they did i mean and that's such a good example because they didn't want people going to that spot and memorializing that symbol of where moses died yeah but you're right marcy you really if you look at the bible as an our our example on this that's pretty eye-opening yeah look at your look at your bible as example on this it doesn't mean that you can't go to israel israel and walk the places that jesus walked and you can't um, walk the places that Paul walked and go to Turkey and all those things. Those are beautiful things to do. But when we go, we're going with our Bibles open and surrounded by people who looked like Jesus, by the way, and probably looked like Paul, by the way. And then we're having a better um, understanding of it. But when we, but when we say, let's take the cross, <laughs> and build a statue to it, Jesus is more than the cross. That's right. He transcends the cross. He, he transcends the item, the material thing. He transcends. He transcended this world. And so when we put our hope and our memories and our um, monuments into the things of this world, we, we are holding on to the things of this world, and we are not um, opening our minds to the things of eternal glory. And who we're not we're not made to do that. There's so many scriptures that that preach against that, and yet we we for some reason we're really stuck in this idea that America means salvation, and that's just not true. It's just not true. That's so good, Marcy. And that you bringing in the biblical perspective was honestly something I hadn't thought about. So I appreciate you doing that because the very people, evangelical Christians that are defend so many that are really defending this, I think, like you just said, take a hard look at the Bible and Jesus's example. Mm-hmm. And that's very eye-opening. So I appreciate you bringing that perspective in, Marcy. Is there anything else that you want to add to that? I mean, there's so many. I had even other questions with it. We could go on and on. I know your time. I don't want to take up your whole morning. So I want to talk about some hopeful things. But is there anything you want to add just to that conversation that I didn't, we didn't touch on? I mean, your example with the lynchings, that's so, so deep and heartfelt. So I want to make sure I've covered anything you want to really put in there. Um, I would just say there there are some um, really good podcasts that have covered um, all the issues with monuments. 
Okay. Um, I think one of my favorites is one that Reveal did a couple of years back. And my daughter was the one who brought it to me um, because her history professor, her, her history teacher brought it to her okay. in the classroom to teach about monuments. And it's called, um, it's Reveal, Reveal is the name of the podcast and the episode's called Monumental Lies. Oh, okay. Think, well, we'll link that up. That's good yeah, to know. Listen okay. to that. Just, okay. just listen. And Christina Cleveland says this really brilliant thing about listening to the other side. For those of you who are still on the side of we need to keep this. She says, listen, you should be able to listen to someone that you disagree with. And while you're listening, rather than storing up your point that you're ready to attack back with, try to listen while finding two things that you agree on. And what that does is it allows you to truly listen because it's really hard to listen to someone that you disagree with because you're just thinking of all the ways that you disagree. Mm -hmm. But when you give yourself the job of I'm listening to this because I'm listening for two things that I, that I agree with, you actually hear a lot more of what the person is saying. And you don't come out necessarily changed by that. But what you do is you come out seeing that person's point of view as a more human point of view rather than just um, a fallible point of view, you know, and, and tossing it off is not, not worthy. That's very good. So listening with an open heart and an open mind. Yeah. It's such, such good advice with that. So Marcy, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. My goodness, we've already been talking for an hour. <laughs> Are you good to talk a little bit longer about I some can. hopeful it, things? Yeah, sure? for hopeful things, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so I will say going back, one of, I mean, 2020, what a year. There's a lot. Um, we can look at this year like it's an awful, awful mess, but we can also look at the hope that we have and some of the changes that we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. The awareness. I mean, just the awareness to the African-American and black stories that we're having and to mm -hmm. people like you. I mean, your Instagram account is growing tremendously. Letty's. I mean, so many because I think people are, are listening and we hope, I hope it's not a phase, but we also see some changes happening and things being taken down and rebuilt. So I know that you wanted to, and I agree, and it's hard to find that balance of like, okay, we're all in and we need to fight this fight and right. push truth in people's face. But you suggested people need some hope and to see some positives. So let's go with that and just tell me some of the things that you're seeing that are, are good changes or new developments that really give you and inspire you and give you hope. For me, the thing that always gives me hope is the next generation. They just give me so much hope. I think seeing children have questions, seeing children be aware that people are hurting, um, even if they don't understand all the, all the, ins and outs of how of what that hurt is um they understand and they feel because kids feel deeply that the world around them is tense right and i love just any time that anyone shares just their kid having this revelation of wow we need to fix that we need to change that Little, little kids. I did a post where I asked for parents to ask their kids what, what, were they, what did they think about the pandemic and the protest and what did they hope for? And I got answers that were profound. Like I, I had little seven-year-olds who were like professors with, with how we could change it, how, how to flatten the curve. 
Seriously. And then I also had like the funniest, funniest responses, like kids who were just blown away that that certain things still needed to be said. You know, I, I marvel at the fact that children have no problem with Black Lives Matter. They have no problem with it. They don't they don't look at it and it doesn't for them because kids are so intrinsically for themselves. And, and, and they're made to be that way. They're so about themselves, their own. That's why a kid can put on a, a towel and say, I'm a superhero. Mm-hmm. Because they, they have that kind of belief in themselves. So for someone else to matter doesn't take anything away from them. They, they understand it perfectly. They're like, well, of course, Black lives matter. Mm-hmm. But they don't, don't then go on to say all lives matter. They say Black lives matter and we should help them. And you're so right. I had the same conversation with my 11 oh, year old. Like she's yeah. just so confused. Like what, what's the problem that people have with that mom? I don't get it. Yeah, no, they don't, exactly they don't get it. And it's really, they don't go, well, my life matters. They don't, they already know it. They know it. So I, I really, that gives me a lot of, a lot of hope that there are kids who are hearing that language in and out all day long. Um, for some of them, and for for many, it will characterize their their future. So I think having a future that understands that Black Lives Matter and why that's important to know is super hopeful for me. And I I had a friend send me a video of her daughter just talking about Jesus. You know, she was she was telling she was telling her mom, you know, like literally shushing her mom, and she was telling people about Jesus and she's telling people about the black people and the white people and, and Jesus loves us all. Like it's it just, it's a very hopeful thing for me. And I think I'm going to be posting later today, all of the kids responses that I received because okay. I, I, I transcribed every single one and you can read through them. They give you a lot of hope, but also I focus on what will be created out of this. I, I focus on the creatives like, the kids who are your daughter's age and my daughter's age, what will they create from this time of pandemic and protest? Like what will they make to make this world more beautiful, more, more welcoming for all souls? So I, I'm very hopeful. And I don't get discouraged by the news as much as I was maybe a couple of weeks ago because I've just kind of shifted my gaze. Yeah. And I think that's important. I mean, how do you keep that balance though between really trying to speak the truth and see what's really happening, but then be hope filled at the same time? I mean, it's definitely a balance that you have to. Yeah. Do you struggle with that? I don't. I, I think for me, and maybe it's part of my upbringing. I grew up in a, I had a very difficult childhood, but there was also a lot of joy in that childhood. And so I don't look at these times as defined by our trauma. I look at them defined by what we do with the trauma, how, who we become. And I also look at it in an internal, in an internal way, because I'm just like, I don't really know why all this is happening now. There are people who will say that the reason that the president is the president is because God wanted him there and, and we need him. And I'm just like, well, then you also have to say that God wanted Herod and he wanted Hitler and he wanted Stalin and he wanted um, Osama bin Laden. Like all, every leader then becomes 
um, an appointment of God. And if that's true, then what would God be saying of those leaders? Maybe it's to point to our hearts and to fix our humanity. But I would rather say we chose who we chose and God is extremely merciful to us mm. despite it. So I think I look for the evidence of that mercy. And one of the things I've really noticed is that in this pandemic, things still flourish. I'm, I'm amazed that there's disease, there's an illness out here that kills people, but not trees. <laughs> you know, it sounds so silly, but it's just like, not all things are, you know, I know that we're social distancing from one another, but not all things need our social distancing. We still have trees, we still have lakes, we still have rivers, we still have gardens. And I look at that and I think, what a mercy. We have that right now. Sometimes in war, you don't have that. Things, everything's destroyed and demolished, but these things still remain and there's something kind of beautiful in that for me. So that's been giving me a lot of hope. Revisited a lot of our old familiars in my family. We're nerds. I apologize to all of you out there. We are big time nerds in my home. So we've gone back to, we're right now in the middle of re-watching the Hobbit, the Hobbit series of movies. And we love the fact that there's diversity in that story. You have this Hobbit who has all the privilege in the world. Just bear with me, y'all. I know, I know. (laughs) But you have this Hobbit, he has all the privilege in the world. He doesn't really have to think about anything else except being himself, what he's going to eat for dinner, sitting and having his pipe weed and, and looking out on the vista. He's cherishing his mother's treasures, her doilies and, and such. He's just so secure in himself. He doesn't have to look at any of the other problems in the world. And then you have this uh, character, Gandalf, who comes in and tells him of people who need him. You know, and of course he says his first answer is it's not my job. You know, I'm not a burglar, you know, and I, I these people are, look at them. They, they come and they destroy his little hobbit hole and they eat everything. And he feels very put upon by this task. And there's a, a teacher, I, I, I have to think of her name. I can't, I think it's Rosalie DeMoss. That might be it. But she's a teacher at Moody Bible, and she talks about Bilbo Baggins. And she says, thank goodness that Bilbo Baggins one day woke up and said, what more could this life be? And he went on an adventure to find out. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could look at what's happening in our country with race as white people who are privileged, I'm Black, but as a white person who's privileged, if you could look around your home and say, what more could this life be? What more could it be? What adventure could I go on? What, what, I, I mean, you're not going to have to face a dragon, literally, you know? But it's just such a beautiful story in the sense of that. And there's a moment in the movie where he tells the dwarves that he's gotten to know. And like you said, when you know people's story, you feel differently towards them. And he says, I know I've complained and I've wanted nothing more than to go home and be in my chair and be near my fire and to have my books. And he said, but that's why I'm here because I want you to be able to have that too. Mm. So if you love your life, (laughs) I feel like crying. If you love your life and you love your children as white mothers and white dads, grandparents, understand that that's what we want too. Mm. That's what we want. 
And whatever you are calling your comfort, if it's, you know, your, the way that your family gathers for a barbecue, the way that your kids go off and to college or, you know, get their driver's license, you name it. Why we are saying Black Lives Matter is we are saying that we want that same thing without the burden of worrying about the color of our skin. We want to be able to gather for a barbecue without someone calling the police on us. We want to be able to gather our children or for our children to mess up and make mistakes without them losing their life over it. That's what we are saying. We are not saying that our lives matter more. We certainly aren't saying that your lives matter less. We are saying our lives matter too. And there's a, there's a big difference in the way you receive that. And we're asking for your help. We're not asking, we're not trying to battle against you. We're asking for your help and making sure that our lives matter too and that we get to, like Bilbo did for the dwarves, tried to do for the dwarves, um, have our chair and our fire and our books and our comforts, yeah. whatever they may be. And that's what we want. It's really simple. And so we've been revisiting those stories in our home and it's just been really, really good to look at how Tolkien, um, we're big Tolkien fans in our family. Husband's British. I, I don't think there was any way around that. But um, we look at how he told the story of hobbits and elves and the elves are from different kingdoms and he told the story of uh, the men and the men are from different kingdoms and how they all come together for this common good of destroying evil. And it's not just the people who are living, it's also the people who are dead. They get the army of the dead and they come. So the ancestors are part of destroying evil. And it's not just people, it's nature, the ants, the trees. The trees are part of healing this evil. And I think I imagine this being, us being in this time where we are thinking about all the things that matter and all of them coming together to defeat this evil that says that Black lives do not matter. And that's what we saw with George Floyd, with Ahmaud Arbery, with Breonna Taylor, with the, the countless video that keeps coming out. And it's not just that Black lives matter, it's that um, if our lives don't matter, then that means that it's okay for other lives not to matter. So that's why we're fighting. We're not just fighting for ourselves. It's that there are other people who are marginalized. And if you can't see that our lives matter, you won't be able to see that theirs do too. That's right. Marcy, that's why I love you. I mean, you just, you have such a gift. I, I don't know how people could not listen to you talk and realize why we say Black Lives Matter, why stories are important, why history is important. So I just, oh, I thank you so, so much for just giving your time and just your wisdom. You are an old soul, I think. You just have so much wisdom, and I thank you oh, for that. I appreciate you. Thank and you so much. I want to talk about, I know we, we need to wrap up here, but I don't want to go without just briefly talking about what's next for Mockingbird, because like we said, Yay. you met your goal on yeah. Patreon, which is awesome. And if this is your first time listening, go check out 
Marcy's Patreon because just because she met her goal, there's, that doesn't mean that, that she wants to stop. Like there's so many more things that could happen. So you've met your first goal. Yeah, it's um, my first goal. There's several goals. Right. Yeah. So you met your first one. So what does that mean? What's next for Mockingbird? And we'll put the link to where people can go support you if they don't already and get more information on that. But what's next now that you've met the first goal, Marcy? Well, because we have Mockingbird History Lessons for Adults and we've met that goal, I now have the ability to start funding the creation of the History Lessons for Children. Okay. Um, which are more, just so you know, I'm so excited about these. These are more about humanity. So it is, it's a humanities lesson tied into history. So it's teaching kids to look at history from the point of view of who is human in this, his, in this story, who's considered to be human, who's not considered to be human in the story, who has rights and who doesn't has, have rights in the story, rather than just looking at dates and, and things like that. And then how does that translate to my life and my world right now? And starting at an itty bitty age, with the notion of who's human and who's not human as a little kid. So what it will allow me to do is to start, um, my husband's a graphic designer, and I'm just going to brag, he's an amazing graphic designer and a topographer. He makes fonts. He's, he's really gifted. And that has allowed us to have a community of resources of illustrators and designers who will help us illustrate visual things for children. So um, will it be all online or is it going to be we, like hard copies like for schools or parents or what is? Most of it will be online okay. just because that's just the way that people yes. most teach these days, especially homeschoolers. And, and because it's a supplement to the history that's already being taught in school, it's teaching the stories that kids won't hear in school mm -hmm. and it has to be interesting for them. Right. But we hope to also do books and to do um, printed materials, fun things for kids, okay. um, kits, craft kits, and things of that nature. Um, but that's that's another goal. <laughs> so, but it's from pre-K to twelve years old. So okay. soon you'll be seeing. I'll be doing more videos to show you what we're doing. We're hoping to keep a diversity of people involved. So we want moms educators, historians, we want a lot of different people of different backgrounds involved in creating the stories. But we also want a lot of different ethnic backgrounds in um, making it beautiful. So we want to hire desi um, des designers and illustrators of color, women. Um, we really do want to have so much of our history is taught from a, from a white male perspective. And we certainly don't want to take white men out of the picture at all, but we want to add more context to it. More, not context, more texture to okay. it. More texture to who's speaking and making beautiful things. Um, so is this something that if you're already a subscriber that you'll get, or is this another, another subscription? Like, is there one, the Mockingbird for adults? And then is there going to be another one to subscribe to for kids? Well, the online material for kids you you've already opted to that as okay. as a mockingbird history for adults so, so the new stuff that's coming out if but the printed material the new stuff for kids as already a patron you have access to that you'll have okay. access to, to okay. stuff for your kids because you were with me and you helped and i don't want you not to have it okay but um there are people who can just get the stuff for kids if they don't want to 
be patrons. They can pay per lesson or or something like that. But okay. for the for the kits and for the the things that cost money to to right, that's an additional make, sure. That's an additional thing, and we're okay. trying to figure out ways to make that not just about us. Who do we who do we want to give to? Who do we want to lift up? What schools do we want to lift up? Right. Um, hopefully, I my dream is that for everything that we do with Mockingbird, that's something that you get in the mail, like a mail subscription of a of a kit of things that that money helps us to make lessons and history and plays. Um, I hope to have plays for schools to do things at schools, yeah, in yeah. schools, yeah. especially those that don't have the funding to do more creative things. They just don't have the funding and books for schools that would be helpful for kids to have. So I have so many ideas. Oh, and so you got I, your work cut out. You have a I lot do. <laughs> and the first step is that I can't, I obviously can't do it all on my own. And I really need to figure out who's going to be part of this, the board, who's going to, who am I going to ask to come along on this journey so that we're all represented. And I, and I really do, I, I've made friends with a lot of moms out there of little ones, and it's this is important to them. So don't be surprised if I email you and I say, hey, will you come aboard on this with me? We really want to, I want to practice what we preach, that we need all the stories. And how do we, how do we create curriculum that we want our children, that, that interests us and delights our children to where they're learning history even that when even when it's hard, it's worth it for them to stay engaged in it. I love this, Marcy. You know I do. I mean, as a mom that's homeschooled and yeah. always looking for new resources and teaching material, I mean, I'm so, so excited about this. And especially lately, the conversations I'm having with my 11-year-old, I mean, just yeah. to have some ways to tell the stories and all the stories. I mean, that's why I love your lessons for adults because there's we don't even know what we don't know. So yeah. I'm excited for the next phase, Marcy. I'm excited for you. And I just, I'm thankful for all you're doing. And we'll make sure to put links to your Patreon page, the lessons. And then this Friday, you have the Q&A. And tell me what time that is again. It's at 10 o'clock. It's free for, you don't have to be Mockingbird patron. So if you have friends that have been interested, I don't like video chat that much. Like I I don't mind it between you and I or Zoom. But I don't really like doing live video and, and I've had that request a lot, but I'm doing it because I want to honor the people who have had questions and, and want to hear those answers to the to questions I haven't touched. And if you want to get to know me and see me be awkward on camera. You know? I've seen your videos that you just, you do. I think you're really good in front of the camera. I so oh don't. That's why I never do these podcast interviews with a <laughs> video because I feel very awkward with them. But no, I think that's awesome. You're doing that and do people just go follow you on Instagram when they if see- you're following on Instagram so the way that it works and I just learned it because I did a live one with Jonathan Merritt thank you okay, yes you hear this but you just you'll see my my face you just click on my my face okay. up top and okay. you ask to join and I let you in that's okay basically you how have- it works all right, you have fun with that, Marcy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I've, I've said, be, be, get, be generous with me. It'll be my first one. I have no idea what I'm doing. That's but right. I, I, think it, I think it's warranted. And you guys have been brave with me. I'll be brave with you. Well, Marcy, I want to I, I wanna keep talking to you. I always could. But my gosh, we, I've taken an hour and a half of your time. So I want to let you get on with your day. But 
I really just can't thank you enough. I learn so much from you every time I talk to you. I'm just appreciative of you and your wisdom. So thank you. Oh, thank you too. It's been a pleasure and we'll be in touch soon, I'm sure. I hope you enjoyed and learned as much as I did from my conversation with Marcy. She's a true gift and I'm always grateful for my time with her. If you don't already support Marcy with her Mockingbird history lessons, I encourage you to go check them out. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be part of that community. And as you heard, there are some exciting things ahead for Mockingbird. Also, be sure to join Marcy at 10 a.m. Friday, June 26th for her live IG session at Mockingbird History Lessons. As always, we'll link all these things up at HerStorySpeaks.com on the episode show notes. Thank you.